You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to take uh, some Q&A. We're going to do some Q&A because I don't think we were quite done with what we had tackled last time, so we can jump back into that if you want. Or if you have other questions, we can tackle that as well. Maybe something related to John 6, the Mass, or what you heard last week, or the divine sovereignty, election, things like that. We'll tackle any of that. So, All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you with the confidence that you hear us, that you know our hearts, you know our, our motives, and um, we can rest in the confidence that we have bold and continual access to your throne of grace. You have graced us and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and for that we give you thanks. We know that this life is not all that we have to look forward to, that we have eternity to look forward to as well. Heaven in your presence, and we pray, O oh God, that you would fix our hearts and minds upon that end and that goal for your glory. We pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to your word now and give us understanding in these things. Help us to have a, a good and profitable and productive time together that you might be glorified through us as you train us to teach like to think like you and to um, to model our behavior after Christ may we be conformed to his image in his name we pray amen okay so I uh, to prime the pump a little bit and get you thinking give you a chance to think of some questions I came across something the other day but I'm kicking around in my mind for a couple of days I wanted to share this with you this is not necessarily an answer to a question but it has to do with the subject of capital punishment and since I have written on the subject of capital punishment for our church newsletter this is something I'm going to go back, I'm going to revise that, I'm going to put this in, in there because I thought this was quite brilliant. People who oppose capital punishment will often say that capital punishment does not deter crime. You ever heard of that? Capital punishment is not actually a deterrent to the crimes of murder and to capital crimes. Well, this was on Wretched Radio actually, and he was quoting and, and listening to, reading an article, and I forget even who wrote this article, and so I can't give the, I can't quote the source for it, for that I apologize. But, he said, imagine a thought experiment. Well, let me give you the other, let me give you another analogy first. Do you believe or do you think that parking tickets deter parking violations? Not what? Not in the, if you really need to park, not in the heat of passion. Okay, but by and large, do we agree that parking tickets deter parking violations? Right, you pull up next to the curb and it's red from here to here. Do you park there? Or are you afraid that the parking Nazi is going to come around the corner the minute you step out of your vehicle and give you a citation? If there is no, if there is a fear of a parking citation, that deters the parking violation, does it not? Except for in extreme circumstances. Okay? So we all agree that punishments do deter offenses. So is it even rational to say that parking tickets deter parking violations, but Execution does not deter capital offenses. That is irrational. You can argue from the lesser to the greater. If the one is true, then certainly, to some degree at least, the other is true. Beyond that, I would argue that capital punishment always deters a second violation, does it not? How does it do that? Capital punishment is 100% effective in deterring repeat violations. 
So somebody rapes and murders a woman, and you execute him, you have deterred 100% further crimes by that individual. Okay, so let me offer you a thought experiment along these lines. Imagine that any murder committed on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, regardless of circumstances, always, without exception, any murder committed on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday was punished by execution, the capital punishment. Any murders committed on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays received a $50 fine. Which days do you think more murders would be committed on? Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays? Or Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays? Is that not obvious? Okay, so that little thought experiment shows to us, I think, that capital punishment does deter crime, capital crimes. All right, that's my little thought for the week. Drop that on the next liberal who says capital punishment doesn't deter crime. Questions? Any questions? Lanny. Lanny has a question about punishment. Okay. This question was, the, the, in the Old Testament, we have capital punishment instituted for mediums and spiritists, or divina, divination, also for the disobedience or rebellion of a child. And by the way, that's not just one act of disobedience. Otherwise, the nation of Israel would have existed after one generation. But it, the, basically, the consistent, persistent rebellious rebellion of a child would be, would be executed. And there's a reason for that in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the passage that deals with uh, children obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Um, there's a whole theology behind why a, a disobedient, rebellious child should be executed. We're not going to get into that. So Landy's question has to do with why then or when did the, that practice of capital punishment go out of uh, practice? I would argue in one sense it never went out of practice because capital punishment has been was part of the Roman system of government. They executed criminals for capital crimes. Uh, it was part of the Jewish system even in Paul's day. Paul was able to say, if I've done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. Um, the Jews, the Jews had capital offenses, and they would, under their law, be able to execute people for certain crimes, even under Roman, even under Roman occupation. Um, after the cross, Paul still spoke of capital punishment as being a legitimate means of, of punishing people. Romans 13. Peter mentions capital punishment, the the government bearing the sword for punishment of evildoers in 1 Peter chapter 2, I think it is. So even after the cross, you have the apostles speaking of capital punishment as being a legitimate practice of God-ordained authority and government. So the death of Christ on the cross did not do away with capital punishment as an option for governments. So then the question is, why, when, why then do not Seventh-day Adventists, if they want to hold to the entire law, why do they not execute their children for disobedience and rebellion? For breaking any law. Well, there are some actually within within the broader brush of evangelicalism or Christianity that would argue that we should put homosexuals to death today. That if our if our government was operating under a biblical form of thinking, a biblical worldview, we would execute spiritists and homosexuals. I, I don't agree with that. I believe or I think that the Scripture teaches that the, today. The church is one entity, and we are not under a theocracy, and the church is not called to institute a theocracy. The church is not, institute, not, not called to institute a theocracy where the Old Testament law is forced out in all of its implications. I, I don't believe that. So I think today that the government is separate from the church, and they are two different God-ordained spheres of authority, and each of them has their own, um, their own legitimate sphere of involvement in the lives of people. In some areas, I submit to the church and the leadership of the church. In other areas, I submit to the government and the leadership in the government. 
and I keep those two separate, and and I don't I obey the government unless they ask me to do something that violates my obedience to Christ in the sphere of His His authority. That makes sense. So I don't know why a Seventh Day Adventist. I, you'd have to ask a Seventh Day Adventist why they don't do that. I would I would imagine that their argument would probably be something to the effect that well we're not we don't have the means since our government is not run by God-ordained people, or since our government is not under the authority of the Word, they don't do that. But if we were, then the government would, of course, shut down on Sundays, and everything would shut down on Sundays, and we would see the we would see the living out of the law in an Old Testament theocracy here in the United States or in every government. Yeah, homosexual activity was illegal in the state of Texas until, was it two years ago, the Supreme Court of Texas overruled that and said that law was unconstitutional? But anti-sodomy law was on the books in Texas until I think it was two years ago. It was never enforced. Nobody was ever prosecuted under it. But somebody pushed it and took it up through the chain of courts and got it overturned by the, I believe it was the Texas Supreme Court. It may have been the U.S. Supreme Court, but it was one of the Supreme Courts that overruled that law. That I don't know. So the question, the question is, did our forefathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, did they, would they have supported Capital, capital punishment and all of these different biblical Old Testament law situations. 20-some or 30-some crimes carried a capital punishment. Uh, adultery, bestiality, uh, trafficking children, kidnapping, all, uh, any kind of idolatry. I would have to say that the Founding Fathers would not have executed people for idolatry or for false religion or the worship of idols because they basically created a free society when, where they did not care what God you worshipped. As long as the government stayed out of your worship, you were free to worship whomever you wanted. Oh, Jenny has the answer. You, anytime you have a society that abandons scriptural principles and starts to move toward a, uh, any form of moral relativism where you make up morality on the fly and what's true for you is not true for me, you're going to see the whole, the whole idea of laws crumble. And they have to crumble because there's nothing upon which they are built. You have to have a moral standard in place, an objective moral standard by which to have the rule of law. The rule of law can't rule if there's no objective morality. And the reason being is because you, you, if you do away with objective morality and everything becomes relative, then you can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. You can't force that, you can't force your morality on me. You hear people say you can't legislate morality, right? The truth is, morality is the only thing you can legislate. Any legislation that's not based upon a moral principle is tyranny. It's just the, the force of somebody in power forcing their will upon somebody else. But if you have an objective moral standard in place that says, well, these things are right and wrong. We, we say that murder is wrong because of an objective worldview. We say that rape is wrong because of an objective worldview. And we say that stealing somebody else's private property is wrong because of an objective worldview. But if you make all of the the morality crumble underneath of that of those laws, then you can't enforce those laws, and then the laws become nothing more than the people who have power forcing their will upon people who don't have power and, and legislating whatever they prefer to have as the law of the land. So if morality is not if, if legislation is not morally based, then it's just me legislating my preferences. I'm going to make you a 49ers fan, so it's going to be against the law for you to wear Raiders jerseys from now on, or any Raiders gear or to own Raiders gear. Right? Is that an immoral or a moral law? It's an immoral law because all it is is a law that reflects my preferences of what I want other people to do. But if being a Raiders fan is genuinely an immoral action, 
Something that we could debate, by the way. But if it's genuinely an immoral action, then I can enforce that law, or we could legislate that law, because it's based upon a moral principle, an objective moral framework. So in 1960s, 1940s through the 60s, we had basically the total disintegration of a moral worldview uh, at the end of that 1960s, 1970s, and then you have the basically the kind of the, the dawning of postmodernism in 1989 as sort of the benchmark when they say that postmodernism kind of came onto the scene. That's the idea that nobody's right and nobody's wrong. That's why you can have lunatic conversations, crazy conversations with people who act like lunatics and say, well, I don't think you're right, but I don't think you're wrong either. And what's right for you is not right for me, and what's wrong for me is not necessarily wrong for you, and there's no objective morality, and we can both be right and believe totally contradictory things. And you have that sort of dawning in the late 1980s, and that's the worldview that people are, that's the worldview people have today. Thomas? Yeah, the irony of the, the irony of their position is that, um, why is it wrong to discriminate? Is it wrong to discriminate? So they're passing an ordinance that says you can't discriminate based upon sexual preferences, or is it, is sexual preferences or gender? Gender identity. gender identity, right? Right. So if you are if you are a man who dresses like a woman, you can't be un, you can't be rejected for employment in uh, the city of Sandpoint. So then my question to that to people who pass that, however well-meaning they might be, would be: Is it wrong for me to discriminate against people based upon sexual identity, or sexual preferences, or gender identity? Well, let's say you're the one to pass the, the ordinance. And you support this ordinance. My question to you would be, is it wrong for me to discriminate if I own a business? Is it wrong for me to discriminate against somebody because of their sexual orientation or because of their gender confusion? Legally it is, but it's not wrong for me. Okay, so if it's not wrong for me to do that, then why are you making me do something that you think is right? See, all it boils down to, all it boils down to is your preference. You have this preference. It's not a moral standard. There's no objective moral standard to the, the law. There can't be. And listen, by the way, once you do away with an objective moral standard, then it should be no surprise that you see 80,000 or 100,000 laws passed every year on state, local, and federal letters, levels. This multiplication, this snowball effect of laws can only come because we have done away with the moral standard upon which the laws is built. Jenny? Yeah. The whole issue of gender confusion, there was a story that was on Fox News recently, probably within the last, I'm going to guess it was in the last three to four weeks, um, this story made headlines about a little, hmm, I'm going to say it's a boy, who is being raised by two uh, lesbian parents, and they actually got a doctor to prescribe drugs that will suppress puberty in this boy to give him time to figure out whether he's going to be a boy or a girl. So he, they're giving him this time to decide what gender he's going to be. And I just thought to myself, this that is... That is abuse. That is child abuse is what that is. That's nothing more than child abuse. And they, they found some wacko physician who's willing to prescribe the drugs necessary to suppress his puberty and to keep him basically in this form of prepubescence until he can decide what gender he wants to be. And I forget even the boy's name, but they had kind of a dual name or a name that could be a boy or a girl for him. It's just, it's horrible. But that's the, that's the moral confusion of our day. Yeah, Jenny? So, yeah, so what do we do about this? Or do we have our votes, so we should vote people who have some sort of a semblance of a, of a committed Christian worldview, I think. Um, that is one way of affecting I think the other way of affecting it is the gospel. It has to be the gospel that is the answer to that. 
We're never going to be able to, I mean, we can argue for a moral position or a moral perspective when we can argue for objective morality, and we can try and reason with people, but that will only go so far. Ultimately, it's going to come back to the gospel. If you have a country that has abandoned the gospel, and people are not interested in that, and they're committed because they love darkness, then ultimately there is, Christians are, we as Christians are going to be simply promoting the message and preaching the message and proclaiming the message and trusting in God for the results. But there's nothing we can do. If I could change every heart and mind in America by my will, I would, but I can't. So ultimately, as a Christian, I'm committed to proclaiming the message and trusting God with the outcome. As I watch something that I, I, I hate to see happen, and that is the complete moral slide of a, of a great civilization built upon a great worldview right into the abyss of history. So barring a move of God, he has to move in order to change things, and he has to change people's hearts. I don't believe that the answer is for Christians to get the right people in the White House. I don't think that's the answer. Um, I want Christians to have the right people in the White House, but that's not where my trust is. So I will vote my conscience, and I will vote for people who are conservatives and who promote the same values that I do. But ultimately, that's not the hope for America is not in who, who rules us. That's irrelevant, really. The hope is in a, a sovereign work of God to do what God has to do in our country. And that can only happen by the proclamation of the word. It's the, yeah, it's the gospel. I'm committed that if evangelicalism invested one-tenth as much money as they've invested in politics in the last 30 to 40 years, we would be way further ahead today than we are right now. We have invested millions of dollars trying to get people elected, and what has it done? We have invested millions of dollars trying to overturn Roe versus Wade, and what has it done? We have gained no ground. The last three decades, we have evangelicalism in America has gained no ground on any of these issues. We haven't because our focus has been entirely wrong. So we have now we have evangelicalism, which is willing to shelve the gospel to get a Mormon elected to the White House. That's insanity. That is utter insanity. He's not going to do anything for anybody. It just doesn't matter who the guy in the White House is or what his what his theological commitments are. That is irrelevant. That is it's just window dressing on the Titanic is all it is. But evangelicalism shelves the gospel in this approach to get everybody on board to get the right people elected to office. And we do that, and then we we make headway for, say, four or eight years. And I'm not even sure that we would call what George Bush did headway in any significant sense. But we, we at least slow down the slide or make headway for four to eight years. And then what happens? Somebody else gets into office, and a 100 days later, we're right back to where we were eight years ago. And what have we accomplished? And we've spent millions of dollars. We've confused people about what the true issues are, the gospel, and we have accomplished absolutely nothing. You, you can make all of this headway, and the next guy gets in office, and he can change it all in a matter of 100 days. What's that? Sounds like the Book of Kings, yeah. I mean, it really does. You see the good king who sort of turns everything back to a period, and then his son, who does not know God, gets in, and everything is reversed almost instantly. And, and that's, that's where we're at in our nation. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge, you guys know this, I'm a huge Ronald Reagan fan. I love Ronald Reagan. I have biographies on Ronald Reagan. I got, I'm a, I'm a, a lover of Ronald Reagan. Well, Ronald Reagan did a lot of good things. He turned back the clock in a lot of ways, and he gained us a tremendous amount of ground. More, he gained us more ground back toward what we need to be than any other conservative president has ever done in the history of this country from shortly after the founders. He gained us back a tremendous amount of ground. But even his predecessor, who was a quote-unquote conservative, undid a lot of that, and then how much of that did Bill Clinton undo? So I mean, you can have the, the best president in the history of our nation become president and turn back the clock, and the next guy turns it right back forward, and you start 
Start right over where, where you're at. Yeah, Lynn's point is, yeah, yeah, Lynn's point is that the leaders in the book of Kings and at the end of the nation of Israel, those kings reflected the heart of the people. And that's absolutely true. The kings did reflect the heart of the people. And we do get the leadership that our nation deserves. Um, the popularity, this was amazing to me because I watched this during the Bill Clinton years. Bill Clinton's popularity skyrocketed after the Mon- during the Monica Lewinsky trial. Do you realize that? His popularity didn't go down. His popularity increased at times during that Monica Lewinsky trial. Why is that? Why did the American people approve of Bill Clinton more, more when they found out he was immoral and was a liar and a perjurer than before they knew that? Because it, it's, that's exactly it. It legitimized the American perspective, and all of a sudden everybody felt like, whoa, hey, the guy in the White House is just as corrupt as I am, and they felt better about themselves. That's exactly it. Good leaders make us feel horrible about ourselves if we don't measure up to good leaders. That's the way it is. People don't like somebody who is in a leadership position, who is high profile, who is uh, rock solid and has a good testimony and holds it all together because that intimidates them and shows the flaws of their own moral behavior. This is an entirely separate thing real quick, just two sentences on this. That is why I think most people in the sports arena hate Tim Tebow. He's a massively uh, popular, uh, massively... Uh, He's high, the highest, probably the highest profile evangelical right now in the sports arena. And they hate him. Why is that? Because he's a bad quarterback? He won championships in Florida. Makes them uncomfortable. That's what I think it is. I've heard audio clips on Wretched Radio that played some of these audio clips of people who saying, we don't like what he makes us feel about the rest of us. These are pagans who are admitting that. And some people say, well, he doesn't, he doesn't deserve to be drafted. Well, look, I could point to a half a dozen quarterbacks in the last 10 years that didn't deserve to be drafted, but nobody's been treated like Tim Tebow has been treated. Why is it? He's a high-profile evangelical. He holds it together. He's bold about his faith. He is consistent. There's no there's no flaw in his person that people can really pick at, and so they just attack him and they hate him because he is a standard that makes everybody else feel guilty. Yeah. So Thomas was before you, Jenny. I had to take Tom. <laughs> Unless you had something about Tim Tebow that you want to talk about. So, Tim, why do you hate Tim Tebow? You're a Christian. Oh, okay. Thomas, <laughs> we were told for eight years that somebody's private life had no effect whatsoever on how they governed the country, right? You'd think that nobody had ever said that now. <clears throat> All right, so do we have a question or any more questions? Do you have a question? Relating to legalism, okay. Okay, so here's here's our, here's our question. Uh, Muslims will execute almost anybody for any reason, anywhere. Uh, whether you're guilty or innocent, that's just their standard thing. They believe in capital punishment for homosexuals, disobedient children, Christians, infidels, Jews, and pigs, which is to repeat yourself because the Jew is a pig in their view, and so are Christians. So they will, Muslims believe in that, yet they are embraced by liberals who would be opposed to capital punishment and everything that a Muslim believes. Why is that? You know, I'll give you a little spiritual principle that will explain almost everything you read in the news. You ready for this? Here it is. Darkness does not attack darkness. Get your mind around that and you will understand the news. Why is it that Muslims can kill and rape women and children in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Afghanistan? And the Secretary of State, who's supposed to be the biggest promoter of women's rights in the last century since Margaret Sanger, will say nary a word about it? Why is that? Because darkness does not attack darkness. That's it. Now, darkness has their little interior squabbles once in a while. But darkness does not wage war on darkness. 
That's they darkness wages war on the light, never on itself. So that was, that explains why you have these odd bedfellows. How do how do those two go together? Well, because they're both darkness. That's why. And darkness doesn't attack darkness. They squabble once in a while, but they don't see much about that. But they won't attack each other because they're promoting each other. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Could you ever get Christians to agree on which laws, which crimes needed to be uh, have capital punishment executed, people executed with capital punishment for them? I don't think you'd ever be able to get people, Christians to agree with that because you have Christians who would oppose capital punishment for no matter what. Um, there are these people who call themselves Christians who would oppose that. And then there are people who are definitely Christians who would oppose that for different reasons. I don't understand those reasons, so I don't think you'd ever, ever be able to get a harmonious front on an agreement on that. I think that that's why in the, that's why I don't believe that in the New Testament we should have capital punishment under our governments today for the same things that Israel did because we are not Israel. And I think we have to keep in a distinction between the policies and the laws that pertain to the theocratic nation of Israel and understand that those, we can learn from those principles, we can learn certain things from them, but we are not intended to take the laws that governed a theocracy and institute those laws today because the United States is not a theocracy. So I don't support capital punishment for disobedient children. I'm not in favor of capital punishment for homosexuals. I believe homosexuals should have the freedom to be homosexual if they want. I just don't want to have it forced, forced on me. So I'm not in favor of executing homosexuals or spiritists or astrologers or people or Mormons who worship a different God or modalists who disagree with me on the Trinity. I'm not in favor of executing people for everything that they executed people for in the Old Testament because we're not a theocracy. I think that's actually an abuse of the law to do that. Under the, that theocracy, that law of the theocracy had a purpose, and the purpose was to keep that nation pure because out of that nation was going to come the Messiah. And the, the, even all the laws that had to do with um, not wearing mixed fabrics and not planting your fields and the ceremonial laws, all of that was intended to make them different, unique, and to keep them pure. And by going through all the ceremonial laws, they were to be a distinct nation, not to be mingled with everybody else, because out of that pure nation, out of that pure bloodline, would come the Messiah. And that was there was a redemptive purpose for that law. Well, that redemptive purpose for that law, even the quirky elements of that law, have been fulfilled. So we're no longer a theocracy. I don't believe that we are intended to make a theocracy. I don't believe that the church is the theocratic nation of Israel or that the church has replaced Israel. And so I don't believe that that law should be brought into the church age and that every government should be trying to make a, the- a theocracy based upon Old Testament law. Does that make sense? The law had a re- the law had a redemptive purpose looking forward to. So the nation was to keep itself pure and separate and set apart. And the law helped to do that. Okay, so what role do grace and love and our, our wanting to give a criminal the gospel have in our view of capital punishment? Um, first, first, we have to say, I'd have to say that the church is not called to institute capital punishment. So that's the government's role. Right. So, what's that? The Christian's view. So the government needs to do that. As a Christian, my desire is that that person who is about to die would receive forgiveness. So as a Christian, my goal would be to get him the gospel so that he understands that. But ultimately, I don't think that the reason for keeping him alive or opposing capital punishment should be to give him the gospel. Well, let's keep him alive for 20 years so we can give him the gospel. Well, you don't, it doesn't take you 20 years to communicate the gospel to somebody. It takes you about 20 minutes, not even that, five minutes. You communicate the gospel to them. Will you accept that or reject that? That's up to you. But here it is. This is the gospel message. And then they need to face the punishment for what they have done. 
So I think as Christians, as individuals, our our attitude should be one of love and compassion and grace and desire for them to be saved and receive forgiveness. But once that, but but the government's job is not to be compassionate. The government's job is to wield the sword for the punishment of evildoers and to reward those who do right. So the government Christian perspective on it is different. I turn the other cheek, the government uses the sword. Those are two different responses to the same evil. I am not to be vengeful. I am not to execute justice. I am to receive that insult. I am to receive it with grace. I am to serve the person, to love my enemies. But the government's not called to love their enemies. The government is called to execute their enemies and to execute justice upon evildoers and reward those who do right for the sake of its citizens. That's the role of government. So I think love and grace does play into it, obviously, but not. we don't try and make the government the agent of love and grace in preaching the gospel to people. Good. Any other questions? Jess? So what if you're a Christian business owner and the government passes a law that says you have to hire a homosexual? You have to have one token homosexual. I think as a Christian business owner, you would re, you you would be free to refuse to obey that law. And you could, I think you could use it. I think you could call it a conscience issue. That would that would be my perspective. Um, what are we going to do someday when they say the churches cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation? By the way, some people have asked why our statement of faith has an issue, a statement about homosexuality in our statement of faith. So what does that have to do with theology? That's a legal, that's a legal protection. That's in our documents. That's in our founding documents so that we are legally protected. So what will churches do when they're required to hire homosexuals? Yeah, I was going to say, what's, what's with the delay? This is not hard to answer. You, You simply disobey. You say, is it right for us to obey men rather than God? And, but listen, when, when a Christian disobeys the law, our attitude is not taking up arms and storming the White House to, to force our morality on them or whatever. When a Christian, and you see this in Daniel, you see this with Paul in the book of Acts, when a Christian and Peter and John, when they were told not to preach in Jesus' name, when a Christian has to disobey the government, the governing authorities, our attitude is one of saying this, I cannot do that. I will stand right here. Do to me what you want. If that means you execute me, if that means you penalize me, if that means you put me in prison, whatever it is that you are going to do, you do that to me, but I will stand here. And I will take whatever consequences that brings. That's civil disobedience. That was Daniel. Daniel didn't fight against the king when they threw him into the lion's den. Daniel submitted to whatever the law of the land was. And he said, I have to disobey it, but he took the punishment and the penalty for whatever that means. That's civil disobedience. It's taking the penalty, the punishment, for disobeying the law. I think that's what a Christian is called to do. Dave, one last question, and then we're done. Does the federal government limit people like me from taking a political stand and communicating it to our congregation? There are laws in place that govern what we do here to promote a political agenda. There are, and I'm not sure exactly what they are. You could contact Christian Law Association, but we are not allowed to use more than a certain percentage of our budget to promote political causes. Um, If we were to have a Republican come in and take the pulpit and present his platform, we would also have to be willing to give equal time to a liberal, doesn't have to mean we have to have a liberal come in, but we would have to give, we'd have to be willing to offer equal time to somebody else in order to, but that's because we're tax exempt. Now, if we weren't tax exempt, we could do whatever we wanted to do. But because we're tax exempt, there are laws that govern what we can do. Uh, no, there's no, there's no limitation on what I can say. I can preach on homosexuality or abortion or anything that I want. I can say anything that I want by law. I cannot endorse a particular candidate, no, but I can say anything on any subject that I want. 
yeah, there's no laws that prohibit what I am, what I can preach on or teach on. All right, so I think we're done. Our time is up. Kind of more discussion than questions, but maybe people didn't have questions, which is, which is okay. I open it up like this. I get no questions about the sovereignty of God or election or anything we covered in John 6, and that's an indication of one of two things. Either everybody knows all this stuff and you're comfortable with it, or you haven't been paying attention to John 6, one of the two. I hope it's the former and not the latter. <clears throat> all right, let's, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the time that we've had and the stretching of our minds and our hearts in these things, and our desire is that we might be thinking in accordance with your word and that your word might impact our thinking and affect our affections and affect how we view the world and the things in it. And we thank you that all things rest under your sovereign control. We thank you that your word has given us clear direction on these things and our desire is that we may know more of the word and so we might know more of you. We ask that you would use the things that we have talked about in this hour to that end, that Christ might be glorified in and through your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.